Hello and welcome back to One on One, New York's longest running sports call-in show. Along with Maddie Bimonte, I'm Colin Lochran. We are pleased to be joined by Sports Illustrated senior writer and author of New York Times bestseller, Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks, Chris Herring. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. How are you guys doing? Thank you for having me on. I'm doing fantastic, Chris. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. This Knicks team has been an interest of mine for a long time, especially considering the fact that they've never brought home a championship, but yet they are so revered in New York for the amount of joy they gave this city. With that, really, I'd venture to say most fans would gladly go back to those days. So in researching for the project, did you find anything that particularly surprised you? <laughs> Yeah, because I was not of an age to have watched them. I, you know, I was four when they hired Pat Riley in 1991. Um, I, I mean, virtually everything surprised me on some level, even if I knew something uh, because of how many people I spoke to for the book, you know, more than 200. There was always another layer to it that I didn't understand or that, you know, there was more backstory to big decisions that might have cost them a championship that I didn't understand or didn't know anything about. And I don't think most people knew about. So, um, you know, learning about the the extremes of Pat Riley's personality and um, what he considered to be a betrayal, the smallest things about, you know, if you pick a certain color car, if it's the color of a rival, you know, if it's if it's green, that that means that, you you know, on some level you're disrespecting Pat Riley because that's the same color that the Celtics wear or red somehow. I mean, it's just like crazy crazy stuff so i didn't understand any of that um and i didn't understand how the league kind of shifted because of those knicks teams which i think is you know a big part of why they're so interesting is that they did not win a championship it's, it's very rare that you can look at a team that doesn't win a championship and say they fundamentally changed the way the game was played um they forced the league to, to change the way the game was played and uh that that's interesting and it's unusual and that you know that's beyond even just the personalities being really fascinating from these teams so um i learned a lot uh, which i guess is what i should want to do you know if i'm introducing a subject to to this many readers um it, it's not worth me taking on unless i can teach people a lot through what i've learned myself you, you talk a lot about personality and you gotta love this team for the abundance that there was and especially the New York grit that I feel like they very much embodied in the 90s. And I know you just brought up their kind of impact on, you know, the NBA and everything. So you address in your book a little bit their violent, their physical nature on the court and how that really played into the way flagrant fouls are addressed, the way that, you know, fouls and refereeing are addressed. Can you just talk a little bit more about that and their long term impact? Sure. I mean, so th probably the best way to put it, you know, and we had a couple double entendres in the um, in the title of the book, Blood in the Garden. Uh, you know, a quick example for people that are listening. Uh, this book period is taking on basically like as soon as Pat Riley got hired. So 1991, uh, to give a context for when that was, Magic Johnson was retiring from the NBA because of the HIV diagnosis that he got. The league started handling... Uh, players that were bleeding differently that season because obviously there was a fear around the idea of HIV and maybe not understanding it, but also not quite understanding the way transmission works, but also wanting better safety with that. So um, to give an example, the Knicks were playing against the Bulls in one series, obviously 
Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, but the the Knicks sent Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and John Paxson, who up until a couple of years ago was the Bulls general manager, over to the sideline to they had to be bandaged up because of those new rules, you know, that took place after Magic Johnson, all in the same quarter. Because the the Knicks were just that physical and kind of like that violent defensively. Um, that all within the same 10, 12 minute span, three different people, prominent players from the Bulls all had to be bandaged because they were bleeding. Um, and so you look at something like that. You look at the fact that in 1993, Charles Oakley had more flagrant fouls by himself than 15 teams did in a league that only had 26 teams. Um, you know, you start to get the impression that, like this team was physical on a much different level than anybody else and that was why the rules started to change why then the league eventually said okay you can't just have an unlimited number of suspensions anymore you or a limited number of flagrant fouls anymore you you have to you know we're going to put a threshold on like if you break this number we're going to suspend you that was why that happened that was why the league started changing the dynamics between just flagrants generally and started saying okay flagrant one is where maybe you hit someone a little bit too hard but you're not intending to hurt them Flagrant two is where we're deciding that you probably did have intent to hurt someone. So that was when that came into play. The idea of the rules changing because of hand checking. The Knicks had Derek Harper on their team who, when they started handing around VHS tapes to teams about what would no longer be allowed in the NBA um, and showing video of what would no longer be allowed. Derek Harper was the guy that kept showing up on the tape as an example of what they weren't going to let be done anymore. So there was that. There was the fact that the Knicks were always involved in big brawls and fights that would span the whole court and people leaving the bench and coming off the bench to sucker punch people in street clothes that those rules changed too. you know, fights were no longer going to be tolerated the way they'd been before. And if you left the bench to fight or even left the bench just to even leave the bench, not even to be involved in the altercation, the league was going to start suspending you. And that happened in 94 when they had a big fight against the Bulls. But then it came back to really bite the Knicks in the butt in 1997 against the Miami Heat because they got involved in, I wouldn't say a brawl, but one of their players kind of boxed out someone very low, kind of close to his knees, a guy named P.J. Brown. And the Knicks player's name was Charlie Ward, a guy that had won the Heisman in football a few years before that. And P.J. Brown got angry about it, and he basically flipped over and suplexed Charlie Ward. Um, and because it happened right in front of the Knicks bench, everybody came pouring off the Knicks bench to go have Charlie Ward's back. But because everybody came pouring off their bench, five of those guys got suspended, including Patrick Ewing, who barely came off the bench. He was not looking to be involved in the altercation. But again, the letter of the law in the league was that if you leave the bench, you're getting suspended. And so they suspended him along with John Starks and Alan Houston and Larry Johnson, four of the Knicks best players in a series where the Knicks had a lead in the playoff series, but then they suspended half the team. You can't suspend half a team all at one time because you wouldn't have enough players. So they had to break the suspensions up, which was almost worse in some ways for the Knicks because by breaking those suspensions up over two games, now you're shorthanded both times instead of just being shorthanded for one game. So the Knicks ended up losing a series that they were in command of at one point in a year where they felt like they had a, a good chance to win the championship in a year where they played Michael Jordan and the Bulls very evenly the whole season. Um, so the, all that stuff influenced the way the league called stuff and, and changed rules. And those rules, in, in many cases, came back to really just haunt the Knicks in, in ways that they still think about to this day. 
definitely a lot of fighting for those 90s Knicks. I'm wondering how much of that was inspired by Pat Riley. Obviously, I know Riley, the coach of the Lakers in the 80s, really the pioneer of the let's beat up the Celtics to try and beat them in the finals blueprint. Obviously, they lose the first finals to Boston in 84. That team comes back in 85 and really outplays them under the boards, outplays them in terms of physicality. How much of that mentality was brought to the Knicks? Yeah, no, I mean, this was this was kind of who Pat Riley was. And um, at one point, my my book editor and literary agent both said, why shouldn't we name the book something else? Can't we go with uh, first of all, I think I'm, I'm biased, but I think Blood in the Garden is like the perfect title for this book for a couple of reasons. But and the flagrant history in the 1990s, Knicks, I actually like more than the title. I think the subtitle is even cooler. But um, I had people kind of in my orbit and my, you know, on my team saying name the book no layups allowed it's just kind of simpler and i said no and they were like why doesn't that fit i said it it, it would fit but riley also also said that line the first time to his lakers teams not to the knicks so it's kind of if you feel like it's just something that you could take from one team to the other then it's not specific to the knicks i don't want it um but riley was very his messaging was very physical with them too with the lakers i just think that the offense that they had overshadowed that they had the showtime offense that was you know renowned for magic johnson and his no look passes and flying up and down the court and fast breaks and james worthy and kareem and everybody else so to me the offense was the focus of that team but it doesn't mean that riley didn't want them to be tough and nasty i just think that when by the time he got to the knicks he realized the knicks didn't have much offense other than patrick ewing and so the team was going to have to be nastier and more physical than even they'd been with the lakers and he also saw that you know in, in the east you had to take down Michael Jordan in order to to get to the finals and so he basically said if if that's the guy we have to go through we have to kind of build the team differently so for him it was more rooted in defense than it was offense and you know if you guys if you've read the book and you've seen the book the fourth chapter of the book is titled knock Michael Jordan to the floor Um, I mean and that was the title was taken from basically a speech that he gave to them in a pregame where he ordered them to knock Michael Jordan out if he had the audacity to come into the lane and try to dunk on them or make a layup on them. And it worked in that game. At least Uh, Michael had dominated them for something like 37 or 38 points in game five of that series. And Pat Riley then decided to have the video coordinator put together a, a highlight that had happened the year before Riley got there where Michael Jordan uses this really nifty fake kind of with the shoulder in his head to fake John Starks and Charles Oakley out of the play. And they go kind of flying in one direction. And then he turns his shoulder and comes back the other way and throws down one of the nastiest dunks you'll ever see on Patrick Ewing. Michael Jordan has actually said it's his favorite dunk of all time of his own. Um, But Pat Riley showed the Knicks that play on a loop for like six or seven minutes. And then when he got done showing it again, the same play for six or seven minutes. So I can't even imagine how many times they saw it. Pat Riley said that this makes me sick. And one of you is going to step up tonight and knock Michael Jordan to the floor. If he ever tries to do anything like this, because you guys are showing him too much. You're almost like revering him too much. And he's not going to just play poorly. You have to force him to play that way. You've got to take something from him. And so if he comes into the lane tonight, you have to teach him a lesson and you have to make him pay for it, which is like a really, really, really aggressive message that, I don't know how the league would handle that now if they heard about a speech like that, but I imagine 
there would be fines, there would be suspensions involved for that. Not to mention that it was Michael Jordan. So the team was just so different and they went out and Michael knew that they were going to come out like that and defend him like that because Riley had been using sort of aggressive messaging in the media before that, just talking about how it was unacceptable and the team was going to play a lot nastier and tougher. And Michael said something to the effect of like, I just want this series to be over. It's been brutal so far. Um, I know they're coming out to try to decapitate me. Like it was just wild stuff that they were talking about back then. And, and Michael played a little bit scared, maybe for really the only time I can remember during that portion, that title era of his, of his career, he took 25 shots, but only three of them were from the painted area. And I don't know that any of them, them were layups. Like he took 22 shots from outside the paint out of 25. And it was one of the worst shooting performances he ever had. The first time he even sought to go to the basket, he lost the ball without anybody being near him. Like kind of like the way you talk about a receiver hearing footsteps, if they feel like they're about to get hit right as they catch the ball. That was what Michael looked like just playing against the Knicks that night. And the Knicks won by a lot and took the series to a seventh game. So there was very aggressive messaging from Pat Riley, but I also think it worked more often than not, um, whether it was that game or later on. You know, we talk about coaching and how amazing Pat Riley was at motivating his team, how that's been great. And I think in the 2000s, we've really kind of seen a decline in coaching on the Knicks. You know, we've had 13 head coaches. You know, we've only won one playoff series. We've had the most losses this decade. So comparing it now to this current Knicks team we're looking at under Tom Thibodeau, do you think that this team is still embodying that New York spirit what can you say about them? What issues in your mind are standing in the way of them and a potential playoff run? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting because Thibodeau is really, I, I make the case like at the very end of the book that they, or even at the beginning that when Jeff Van Gundy resigned in 2001, that they basically lost the last few remnants of that toughness that Riley instilled um, because Van Gundy was an assistant under Riley Riley leaves the job to go to Miami, you know, under, under, while well, he's essentially under contract with the Knicks still. Um, they get Don Nelson, but it's only for 59 games because he doesn't last. And then they bring in Van Gundy to coach the team. Uh, but it, you've essentially, with the, with the exception of those 59 games, you've basically had Riley's DNA kind of running through the organization. Um, now Tom Thibodeau's there. Tom Thibodeau was a, a Van Gundy assistant. So he didn't coach under Riley, but he still had enough years to kind of learn some of that stuff through Van Gundy. Um, interestingly, last year they made the playoffs in Tom Thibodeau's first year with the team where the team was fourth in defense. And more or less, every time the Knicks have had a really good defense over the last 30 years, they've made the playoffs and they've been one of the best teams in the league. Uh, last year, that was the case. You go back to uh, 20, was it 2011, 12? 2010-11, so like the Jeremy Lin year, they were very good on defense that year. Um, and even, you know, they, they tend to just be at least an average defense. Like it's very rare that they're horrible on defense and great on offense and they, you know, and they make a run. It just generally doesn't happen that way in today's NBA anymore. You have to be able to get stops. That's what's missing this year, quite frankly, that and the fact that Julius Randle doesn't look like he did last year. Um but they went from being fourth in defense to now in like the twenties, I think. And that's just not going to cut it. Um, they're missing Derek Rose. Uh, like I said, Julius Randall has not played anywhere near as well as he did last year, which 
some people saw that coming. You know, he had a really great year last year that was kind of an outlier for him statistically. Um, but even if he did, you would expect him to be closer to what even, I mean, this is even worse than he did before he was a Nick. Um, you know, I would say closer to earlier in his career, which you generally kind of expect someone at his age to really be blossoming right now. And it's just, it's very clear to me that he's not really a true number one option. Um, I think the playoffs showed that last year a little bit too. So I really, I think that the, we can look at coaches and I think that, you know, coaches are partly to blame. They've had some historic Hall of Fame coaches though to come in. Mike D'Antoni's coached the team. Um, you now you've got Thibodeau who, you know, has been a coach of the year, one coach of the year last year. Um, you've had Larry Brown, who's a Hall of Famer. You've had plenty of people come in that are capable coaches or have been capable coaches before what they've been lacking, which is somewhat surprising, but maybe not completely since they've struggled is that they haven't been able to convince like a true, true superstar to come sign on with this team, which I think can cover up for a lot of mistakes can cover up for bad ownership can cover up for a bad defense. Even um, if you've got one, there are only six, seven of those guys in the league, but it's kind of crazy to think that the Knicks have never had one since those years. And the closest they've gotten arguably is Carmelo, and, uh, you know, by the time they got him even, you know, maybe he's a top 10 player. I think one year he finished third in MVP voting, but I don't think he was even consistently a top 10 player during this year. So um, th- that's what they're missing. And it's it raises the question of if they're going to keep struggling, who just makes the leap and says, I just want to play in New York? Does it have to be someone who's from New York? Is it someone like a Zion Williamson who's just frustrated and wants out of his situation? But it's. It's been interesting to look at the fact that the Knicks have just not had a superstar really since Patrick Ewing. And, uh, you know, people talk about Patrick Ewing being the start of everything going downhill, uh, maybe, but also like it helps to have someone of his caliber to help you win the way that they did during the 90s. With so much attention being placed on getting superstars and, and people of this nature to join teams, do you think that the defense around the NBA has gotten worse I know myself, I've seen teams gravitate towards more of a spacing style offensively, resulting in a lot more threes than in the past. I was talking about this previous last year, the mid-range game is a dying art form in the NBA. Does that affect how teams look at their defensive strategy? And is a team like the 90s Knicks plausible to have that type of take-no-prisoners mentality and go out there and really guard up each and every possession? No, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think the Knicks are part of why you've got today's game because the league basically decided, you know, in light of some of what was happening with Michael Jordan and the Knicks during those years, we can't put our stars at risk physically. I mean, a lot of people saw the Grayson Allen foul on Alex Caruso earlier this past weekend. Um, and the idea that, you know, someone breaks a bone, breaks a wrist, whatever it is, that happened in the 90s too, but the league basically said we cannot have any more of this. Uh, it's bad for the league. It's bad for business. It's, you know, it, it, people can potentially lose a career over this sort of stuff when teams are actively trying to go out and potentially hurt people. And the Knicks were doing it as a way of leveling the playing field because they didn't have the talent that the Bulls had. So the league basically came in and said, not specifically to the Knicks, but I think it was very clear they were one of the intended targets. We don't want the league to get to a place where physicality is used as an equalizer when you don't have enough talent and skill. And so they started making a lot of stuff illegal um, to emphasize skill and talent and athleticism. And now look what you have in the NBA, a ton of skill guys shooting from 40 feet away, um, a ton of athleticism, people dunking from beyond the free throw line. 
And, you know, and frankly, I, I think that that's kind of what the league wanted was to have this level of skill, this level of athleticism and talent. And um, so you've got the floor spaced in a way where I think it would probably make it very difficult for the Knicks to step out and defend that far. Um, you know, if they had to defend Steph Curry, I feel like he'd probably put them in a little bit of a blender. Um, so, yeah, I, it, it's weird. I think the Knicks from the 90s would hold up really well offensively, um, which is weird to say because they weren't good offensively back then. But if you gave them the spacing today and you, you assume that guys would adapt, the guys that they had on those teams would adapt. So someone like Patrick Ewing, um, who already was one of the, you know, maybe the best seven-foot jump shooter of his era, uh, who all, always was shooting from 17, 18 feet anyway, if you push him out to 22 feet, I'm pretty sure he would be able to make that in 2022. Charles Oakley was a good jump shooter. So, you know, him having the instincts he has defensively as a rebounder, Anthony Mason, you know, the comparison that you hear all the time in the NBA today is Draymond Green, a point forward who's extremely versatile on defense, who could really pass the ball. Anthony Mason. John Starks led the league in three-pointers made one season. Hubert Davis led the league in three-point percentage another season. Charles Smith was a guy that averaged 20 points a game before he came to the Knicks with the Clippers, who had a 51-point game and, you know, a franchise record 51-point game with the Clippers before he ever came to the Knicks that was forced to play small forward because they already had Oakley and Ewing by Riley. So if you put him in his natural position in a small ball league as a five, I think the guy would be lethal. Um, so I... I think they'd probably be really a lot better than people give them credit for on offense, but the defense is a different question because they would have to cover so much ground um, and they wouldn't be able to, because stuff is so spaced out, you're not going to have guys just waiting there to clock people at the rim the way that they could before. And even if you could do that, the league would threaten to throw you out. So it would be very different for them on defense, but I think they'd probably be a lot better than people realize on offense. The game has certainly changed. Mace, Starks, Ewing's, Names, certainly ones that Knicks fans wish were still on the team. Be sure to check out Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you guys for having me. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Stay tuned to One on One as when we get back, we'll have some MLB headlines with Matt Benzel. <laughs> 